This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation. I would like to pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging and say that sovereignty was never ceded in this country. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Also, the music for this podcast is by a Melbourne band called Silt and I would highly recommend you checking them out. I think they have an EP coming soon. So look out for that. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Can I Borrow Your Mind with Lewis Garnham. I'm very excited to be talking to you. I've just finished the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Thank you if you came to my show. Um, yeah, that's cool. Good on you. <laughs> Congratulations for coming to my show. If you'd like to see me perform, if you're in Sydney, I'm going to be doing the Sydney Comedy Festival uh, from the 6th. Six, I hate saying the word 6th. It's quite difficult. The 6th till the 9th of May at the Enmore Theatre, not in the actual big theatre, not in the 2000-seat theatre or whatever it is, but in a separate room that's part of the same building. I think it's called The Loft. <laughs> Small little room. I'll be there for four nights, Sydney Comedy Fest. My show's called Lewis Garnham, The Worst Train I've Ever Built. You can find tickets, just Google them. Go to the Sydney Comedy Festival website. Sorry if you can hear my dog's fighting each other in the background they're really going for it today um and if you'd like to see me around melbourne i'm doing shows with the melbourne comedy festival road show all of this week wednesday through to saturday uh you can go to the melbourne comedy festival website to get tickets for that they're in sort of the eastern outer suburbs of melbourne and, and gippsland area like warburton knox dandenong a couple other places i can't remember um but yeah, that'll be really fun. Great lineup. Geraldine Hickey, Dan Connell. Uh, I think maybe Jude Pearl is on. Maybe David Quirk. I can't remember. I, I, I'm sorry. I can't remember exactly who's on, but it's a great lineup. Um, and that brings me to this podcast, episode 20 of Can I Borrow Your Mind? This week's guest is Amir Rahman. And I'm so excited. I've wanted to get him on for a long time because he's one of the first comedians that I really watched and um, I don't know, admired, I guess. I, I, I remember seeing him when I was quite young doing comedy on the ABC and yeah, I always, always really respected him. He was one half of Fear of a Brown Planet with Nazim Hussain, who's also been on this podcast. Go back and listen to that episode if you like. That's a ripper. And they won the Best Newcomer Award at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, very prestigious award back in maybe 2007, 2008, something like that. You might have seen Amir. He's got um, one of the most viral bits of stand-up on YouTube. If you go Amir Rahman, uh, reverse racism. It's a very famous stand-up comedy routine. I'm going to post it in the description for this podcast, actually. It's one of the best bits of stand-up you'll see. He's written for New Matilda, Junkie, Beat, The Saturday Paper. He's an activist. He's very politically minded. His comedy was always very searing, very political, very uh unforgiving and yeah, I really I really respect that about him. He he never he never um catered to I guess the mainstream the way you're meant to do it, to be mainstream and to be successful in comedy, I guess. And we speak about that in this podcast. We speak about racism in Australia. We speak about Heredia Lumumba. We speak about Black Lives Matter in America and, and, and Joe Biden and a few other things like that. It's a very interesting episode. Amir's very smart. And going back to the premise of this podcast, it's me learning about things. And I learned a lot during this podcast. Had a really enjoyable time as well. Um. Yeah, Amir's also, I'll just tell you a couple of other cool things that he's done. He's had, you can find these on YouTube. He's had big sort of panel discussions with two people who I think are, you know, maybe my two favorite intellectuals, really, uh, Dr. Cornell West and also Naomi Klein. So that's pretty amazing. And you can watch those on YouTube. They're really great discussions. I highly advise you to soak them up. <laughs> that's a weird way of putting it. Go Get on YouTube, soak them up. Um, yeah, that, that's all I think I needed to say. Um, I'll, I'll see you next, next fortnight. This is fortnightly episodes now. Uh, I hope you like that. That's the new system. <laughs> Subscribe to this podcast. I don't know why I need to keep telling you this. 
It's ridiculous. You should have already done it by now. If it's your first time listening, subscribe and then also go back and listen to the earlier episodes. If it's not your first time listening, why haven't you subscribed yet? Bloody bloody do it, all right? Uh, enjoy this episode. It's a ripper. Thank you for listening. This is, uh, what's it called? Can I Borrow Your Mind with Lewis Garnham. That's me. And this is episode 20 with this week's amazing guest, Amir Rahman. I wanted to start by asking you, um, I, I, I often like asking guests um, sort of about like their life and, um, you know, maybe their childhood and what led them to get into certain things. And I was wondering what, what led you to get into comedy and then also um, what led you to leave comedy. And maybe this ties in with moving to Istanbul. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. So I think probably moving between uh, Australia and the Middle East when I was a kid, um, you know, in terms of identity, in terms of, like going from a place where being Muslim was normal to a place where it wasn't normal. I think that like did a lot in terms of kind of, um, kind of forming my identity probably. And then, you know, later, like when I got a bit older, like, you know, politicizing me, especially. Um, and then I was already like involved in a lot of sort of politics and activism and stuff like that. And, and I've been like consuming comedy my whole life. Like I loved it, but I never thought of it as a thing that I could do or, you know, and definitely not in Australia where there just wasn't really any real like non-white mm-hmm. stand-up presence, you know, that you would, you know, see uh, or, you know, at least have access to easily. Um, but then I think when I, when I really saw more political comedy, um, that's, that's, I think that's really what got me into it. So it was kind of a sideways thing. It wasn't like I was like a lifelong stand-up fan. Even though I had loved stand-up my whole life, it was just not something I'd ever dreamed about doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, who were the political comedians? Because another thing that I was sort of planning on asking you was like, to me, it seems like there's, I mean, I, I feel like in Australia, uh, nearly all comedians are like progressive in um quotation marks or woke would be a good way to describe them actually woke but you get to that (laughs) let's get to that but but there's but i feel like there's not that much like proper uh politically active left-wing comedians and especially now that you've gone like you were filling that hole like there's not many at all do you, were there ones that you were inspired by who were really political before you started and why don't you think there are any now uh, so, I mean, my, my, my list is pretty standard, you know, Richard Pryor, Paul Mooney, Bill Hicks, yep. Chris Rock, Chappelle, you know, and I don't think if on lists of quote unquote political comedians, people might not necessarily put, you know, Chris Rock or earlier Chappelle on there, but they, you know, they definitely were. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh and uh what was sorry what was the rest of the question um why why do you think there's a lack of and i mean maybe this is true in the states as well but it feels like in australia definitely there's a lack of like uh it's just just not it's not sustainable it's 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 just not um you know i i i really used to avoid like clubs and comedy lineups because I mean, yeah, like this is a long time ago. It was two thousand like seven that I started, and I remember the first the first stand up gig that I did after Royal Comedy was uh, well, even in Royal Comedy. Like I remember in the Royal Comedy final, it was Melbourne Town Hall, which is you know it's probably twelve hundred, maybe twelve fifteen hundred people. Like it's, it's a big audience. I remember, you know, this, this routine that I've been doing fine for weeks and weeks in front of, you know, a lot of friends would come to support or whatever. I remember I was doing it and it was going fine. And I said something about Cronulla. I said something about white people. And, and I just heard this like low kind of boo, like in, oh, the, in a corner, 
but not, not enough to like derail the set because it's such a huge crowd, right? It wasn't like there was dead silence and someone yelled out, but I heard it. I heard it and I was like, oh, this is like, I, I really kind of, you know, I was young, I, I was inexperienced and I was, you know, I was like in a bubble of my friends and I was like, oh, like that's what comedy is. Like it's, this is a really mainstream thing. Mm. And then I went to my first gig and at my first gig, a woke left-wing comedian was complaining to the other comedians how they had gone to a primary school. They had been booked for a primary school gig and they had turned up in blackface as a joke. And they were like, oh, and the teachers were upset and they just didn't get it. And all the other comedians were like, yeah, obviously you were, you know, Whoa. it was tongue in cheek and all this kind of stuff. And then like when the, when I, when the person announced me on stage, they kind of made a joke about my name and yeah, it's not the end of the world. Right. It's not like, but you know, and the second gig I did, the guy <sighs> before me was making racist jokes about being about Muslims, which, you know, I, then I made fun of him and whatever, but it just, it just became clear to me that like, you know, like I said, it's not the end of the world, but also like, this again and again and again is going to get on my fucking nerves. Like yeah. I'm going to end up like in a confrontation with someone. For sure. Um, so, but you know, Matt, Matt Keneally and Simon Barber and uh, Toby Halligan ran political asylum for a, for a long time, which was just like, a, you know, the, it was the greatest space for me, honestly, where I could just go and do my stuff. People knew I was going to be there. They would, you know, People who liked political comedy would come. Yeah. Even other comics who didn't generally do political material would come and do the stuff that they can't do at their corporate gigs and stuff there. So, you know, that was kind of a rare, a rare thing. But just to be like aggressively political in comedy in Australia, anywhere really, uh, other than maybe the UK, I think the UK is probably where it's, it's, you can go the furthest. It's just not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's already so tiny. Like it's already like a very, very small market. So if you're different in any way, it's difficult to push through. Mm -hmm. um, but on top of that, if you're brown, if you're aggressively political, then it just, it puts a lot of people off. It puts, I mean, it puts other comedians off. Yeah. But right? like yeah, it's, it's general perception that you're like hostile or, and you know, this is also now not just the content of my standup, but you know, I know when I say stuff on social media, I know how it's going to be perceived. Like I know if I talk about racism in the media or in Australian culture, like, you know, I know that adds to a certain perception about me. Right. And yeah. Then, yeah. I know it scares people. Like it's not designed to, right. Yeah. And I don't always want to be that person. Right. Even when something happens, I'm just like, oh, gosh. but I know there's not that many people around, you know, in comedy from my perspective who can say something like that so i do it you know it's yeah. not always something i enjoy it's certainly not something like i know i know people think that um you know sometimes you do these things for attention or, or whatever but i mean i can say absolutely like it doesn't help your career at all <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah like having like viral tweets about racism doesn't get you money like it doesn't <laughs> help you in any way um do you you strike me as someone uh, uh, okay you mentioned the, the woke comedian doing blackface and then um yeah you strike me as someone who might be frustrated you know you spend a lot of time in melbourne and in the melbourne comedy scene this is something that frustrates me sometimes it feels like almost like people would rather be woke in quotation marks because it's it's kind of easier to be woke than it is to be um political because it, it, in order to be woke you don't actually need to dismantle the racist structures or whatever it is that you're talking about you sort of just need to use the right word or you know um cancel people for using the wrong word as opposed to actually having to work hard and i don't know do you do you have opinions on that i feel like the world is becoming more and more woke but simultaneously uh, less it, it, it's, political it's, or something. Um, it's style over substance, you know? Yeah. Um, and this is really, this is, this is like one of the, like I won't forget this because it, it upset me so much. Um, 
And it was one of the, I, I think it might've been the last, one of the last few political songs that I, that I went to before, before I left. And a comedian turned up and they're all nice people. Like, you know, one thing I will say, like for Melbourne comedy, at least like, like, like people try to be nice. Like, I think maybe that's like an Australian thing. Yeah. Cause I feel like in the U S like there's in the U S there's really like, there's this thing where you have to carry yourself as if you're amazing. And if you don't, then like people just don't, like they just don't respect yeah. you. Like, yeah. Yeah. But you know, and, and I think it's part of that whole Australian, like tall poppy thing. Like you've got to talk yourself down. You've got to be mm-hmm. humble. You've got, so, so there is that, but so this person and she's fine. She's nice. She's, 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 she's a very nice person. Right. But she did this set and she was like using this terminology, like people of color and all this kind of stuff. And she's like a very well-known mainstream comic. And I, like, I know this person's work and I know all of the shows that they've been on over the years. And I'm like, you've never worked with black or brown people. You've never ever like everything you've done has been surrounded by other white comics. So like, what is the point of you turning up here and using like this fancy language when in practice, you've never, you've never actually, you like, you're a hundred percent part of this very homogenous white culture. Yep. Yeah. And like, to me, that's just so, that's just so infuriating because it's so shallow. Absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, absolutely. It really pisses me off. It's, um, and that, that's like growing like that sort of yeah because it's you know the, the, this it's so weird because you know when i when i started stand-up you know if i said white privilege on stage like maybe my audience would have known what i was talking about mm. or, or you know some people would have known but now yeah. whether you believe it exists or not everyone knows what it is as a concept right social media I, and, and so it's you know the the language and the concepts are out there yeah. Um, and for really, you know, pretty lukewarm center left sort of people, you can speak about representation and use this kind of, you know, language of, uh, you know, microaggressions and, you know, racism and patriarchy and misogyny and all this, all this kind of stuff without it meaning much. Yeah. Um, okay. Then on that, um, that's not for anyone listening. That's not me like dismissing the ideas of patriarchy, <laughs> but I'm just saying like you can name check, you know, you can name check that, that kind of terminology without really having any. Totally. Any yeah. So then, um, like on this, um, I was having a conversation with a friend a while ago and, um, there's actually, there's a comedian in Melbourne, um, at the moment who, who does a joke that I quite like Andrew Portelli. And it's a, it's a joke about how uh, rallies have become uh, a, a contest to see who can get the best photo on Instagram of like the catchiest slogan on their thing that they're holding up at the rally. And I do feel that when I go to protests and, and it feels like protests are getting quite big, like numbers wise, but it, it feels like there is a lot of that going on. People are there to show that they've been there and that they're woke and etc. And I was saying this to my friend and she said, she made the point and I wonder what you think. She was like, but fuck it. At least it is popular. At least whether it's trendy and whether it's vapid or whatever, at least it's on trend. That's better than it not being on trend. Like it has to become the cool thing to push change anyway. How do you feel about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say like, you know, cause as much as I like, you know, I just see so much of this performative stuff on social media and, you know, people, um, yeah, um, you know, people just really building brands around this kind of stuff. And, um, yeah. but at the same time, like without social media, certain things just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. You know, so the, the, the way, you know, people are able to communicate and people who wouldn't have had a voice before are able to communicate. So I guess it's, you know, they, they just kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and, but for me, the thing is like, like, being able to spot like, what's fake and what's what's not you know yeah I mean, again you know during during like when 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 blm really kicked off you know around uh the middle of last year i saw comedians again who have never ever ever worked like i'm not exaggerating like they just haven't worked with black or brown people before mm-hmm. they've been on tv they've had their own shows they just have never gone near the issue of race yeah 
they would post uh, black Insta- uh, the black Instagram square, mm-hmm. or they'd post, you know, Nikia Louie and Miranda Capsule's uh, clip from uh, Get Cracking, which is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. People who just like post one or both of those two things <laughs> and then just move on, right? And, yeah. just, and, and, you know, and if you, you know, you can't call that stuff out. You can't, like, you know, there's, I've done just too much of like calling shit out in this industry to like, you know, keep going. Sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. You know, because uh, I mean, I, it's too, it's, I would say it's too late for me, but you, you, you really become, oh, it's that, it's that guy. It's, a, it's, it's that person with a chip on their shoulder that just doesn't stop complaining and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it, we need those people. They're, they're the most important people in society, I think. But they're, it, the, bro- they're the brokest people in society. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, then, um, I think it was around that time that you, and, and I feel like this is on the same train of thought, the performative shit. Um, I think around that time, the project, uh, like put up some stuff to do with black lives matter, or maybe they ran a story about racism or something yeah. like this. And then you tweeted, I don't, I'm not sure actually, maybe you explained, did you tweet in response to their story? And what did you tweet? Cause I read the Twitter thread that you put up and I, I found it so great. And yeah. Do you want to talk about that? So, I mean, pr- most people listening will have some idea of, of uh, Reggie Lumumba's, sort of history sure. of calling the football club. And we've been friends for, for a long time. Um, and, you know, I'd known about that whole situation. And then in 2017, he came forward with his story. SPS made a full documentary on it. Uh, and then the project decided to interview him. Um, and long story short, you know, this is all in the, it's all in the thread, but um, the interview started out fine. And then it just suddenly took this, weird turn and turn it into this really like just circular nonstop kind of grilling. Uh, and the, the crux of the whole thing was, well, like no one's admitting that they were racist to you. So basically how can we believe you? Right. And there was also this whole, like, uh, you know, a lot, uh, a lot was made about, uh, well, we are no calling the side of the story. So, we just have what you're saying, which is like a weird way of discrediting someone. You know, a black guy says this white football club was racist and you say one, uh, no one's admitting that they were and two, (laughs) they're not telling us anything. So who can we believe? Uh, And, you know, that was bad enough. Then they cut back to the panel where, you know, Peter Hellier and Willie Ali just, kept going, like just kept going, saying like a bunch of really bizarre stuff that was just continually discrediting him, running interference for Collingwood, basically saying, you know, there's probably a lot of goodwill there and they don't want to seem like they're attacking him, so they're not going to respond. Peter Hellier is saying, if you haven't named anyone, then you're saying the whole club is racist. It was just like, it was... When I watched it, I was in shock. I was like in really, mm. sorry, one second, I'll just plug my computer. No worries. You're just doing a quick costume change. Yeah, I'm getting hot. <laughs> That's better. Um, sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, so, so when, I, when I watched it, I was really like in, in shock. Like, well, one, I was in the room when the interview was happening. Mm. And I thought, I mm. thought it was pretty bad, but I thought, okay, maybe, you know, Willie's thinking about, you know, a conservative white, you know, audience and the questions they would have. So asking these kind of things is a way for, for Lumumba to, you know, answer that. Um, but then, you know, watching the edit of the interview and then watching the comments afterwards, like, I, you know, like it was just, it was a, it just seemed like a hit job. Like I couldn't reconcile it, right? Yeah, and it was weird and, because the, the SBS documentary came out and then, yeah, I guess the project thing. And then, I, yeah, I feel like the, the racism at Collingwood like just never really got addressed in the media. Well, it, well, that well, that just kills the story. Yeah. It just completely kills the story. So anyway, I found out like very soon after, like in the next couple of days, like from a mutual acquaintance, that Collingwood had directly called the project wow. and spoken to the lead and discredited Lumumba 
you know, he's got, you know, he's got an axe to grind, blah, blah, blah. And then well, he just believed, like he, he genuinely believed it. And he was like, well, you know, senior people at Hollywood have called me, why would I not believe it? Right. Wow. Which is, I mean, like, <laughs> dude, I'm not a journalist, right? But if there's two parties, if there's two parties involved in a story and one says, this party did this to me and the other one rings you and goes, no, 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 that guy's crazy. You don't say, oh, they said no comment. They definitely did comment, yeah. right? And if you say no comment, then you're covering for them and you're colluding. Totally. Like that is yeah. the most yeah. basic, basic ethical like, guideline yeah. for yeah. a story. And if you really thought, if you really didn't believe him, then why would you run a story? Why, why would you run an entire story yeah. on someone that you think is a liar? Like it was just, anyway, so it, kill, it killed the story. This is 2017. It just ended it. He was already planning to move overseas to LA. Like, thank God that he really left football behind. You know what I mean? Because for people don't understand for like playing football, you know, it takes that period of your life where you you basically form your life, right? Like your lifelong friendships, it's your job for that long. And most people in football, you know, aren't really trained to do anything else. So they end up coaching or, you know, doing other sports related stuff afterward. Yeah. You, had, you don't have time to make friends anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy to walk away from that world, which is why very few people speak up and very few people are willing to challenge it. Thankfully, Lumumba was moving to LA. You know, he had a partner. He was just moving on from football completely, which is why I think he's, you know, part of why his, you know, his psyche has stayed intact. You know, he just wasn't reliant on that world for anything. And he's like an incredibly, you know, disciplined and intelligent person. But... Fast forward now to 2020 when BLM's happening and I basically tweeted a thread about that whole thing Mm. Uh, because I was just like, it's, you know, people should know like whether anything happens or not, people should know like this was like a basically a masterclass in how institutions shut down, uh, you know, allegations of racism or, or any kind of allegations of harassment. Yeah. And yeah, because even if it wasn't a race thing, like you said, the ethics of that from a journalistic point of view is completely fucked. Like, and they all know that they're professional journalists. Like it's, yeah, yeah, it is collusion. Um, And I think, you know, in light of Me Too, um, because I think Me Too did a lot to educate people, you know, obviously, you know, in a limited way, but still in terms of how people are discredited and people's, you know, accounts of harassment or bullying or abuse are denied. In the wake of Me Too and BLM, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I attached the video of that interview because they took it down later. Mm. Um, I think people saw that, in, like people saw right through it. Yeah. People saw yeah. right through it at the time. I mean, people, I remember people calling me going, what is going on? Yeah. You know, like other pe- people in the Muslim community just being like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Yeah. Um, and this, yeah, this was just, it was so clear. It was so absolutely clear how, like, terrible this was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a really, th- th- that and then Adam Goods, like, I guess because I really love football as a sport. <laughs> um, that whole thing and then the thing that happened to Adam Goods, both of them, I don't know. I, even if, no, maybe not because I love football, but they're just such these little moments are such insights into Australian racism, I think. And I think this is something again, that you're well-placed to answer because you know, you, you you've traveled a lot around the world, been to lots of different places, very political, very smart. And you've probably experienced racism in Australia, like towards yourself. Is Australia uniquely racist compared to other like Western nations like because i feel like we have this weird thing um and like the adam goods thing and yeah and heredia lumumba is similar of like um yeah this weird shame of our racism where we just like pretend that we're not racist or something yeah i mean not only pretend but then if someone says it (laughs) you know you you act like you're a victim of racism like that's (laughs) that's the energy with which people react yeah like it's such an insult. Um, is it uniquely racist? I mean, yeah, I'd say like on the surface, 
definitely like culturally you know because culturally it's different yeah um uh but yeah in that in that sense all those places are unique right yeah i guess the underlying racism the logic of it is the same and the origins are the same Mm -hmm. but they just play out differently because of different histories different populations you know one one of the real like obviously australia is a you know it's a, a settler colony but the thing i try to explain to people you know for example like i'm i'm south asian if i go to the uk there's all kinds of racism there um but you know south asians have been in the uk for like five generations mm. like there's so much a part of the culture it doesn't mean racism's gone but it also means that like they're just uniquely part of that that culture yeah undeniable whereas because of the white australia policy because the white australia policy didn't allow non-white people to come until the early 70s none of these immigrant communities have been established in australia long enough to build up like you know real sort of deep histories of resistance or really you know influence on culture yeah so australia what it's like australia's white culture kind of held out so much longer than everyone else totally that makes sense um so yeah you know like i'm i'm not even first generation i wasn't born in australia and we came in the late 80s my son technically is first generation yeah um and yeah so that so that has all these weird like flow-on effects right like my my wife's east african a lot of east africans came in the in the 90s like it's 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 like a weird time warp you know so when you say when I say Australia is culturally like 20 years behind, it really is. It is. It really yeah. is because, you know, people just haven't had that generational influence on the culture uh, and that history of fighting the culture, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And really, you know, the, even if there's racism, the confidence that you see in later generations of immigrants, you know, it makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, did you feel... Uh, last year we talked about BLM just like really briefly. Did you, um, what did, what did you feel during that time? Uh, I, I felt quite excited seeing that many people, um, and you know, people talking about how, how bad cops are and, um, yeah. talking about these sorts of things for the first time in my life. What, how, how do you see that movement and, and, and like going into the future? I don't know. What, what do you think? Do you think the police should be defunded? Do you think, um, is, is that movement going to continue pushing or was it just one of those things that blew up for a while because of the video of George Floyd and now people will forget about it? Do you feel optimistic? Yeah. What do you, what do you feel about black lives matter? Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, that, that level of energy, I don't know, you know, because, mm. you know, those, these things like build up and they dissipate and they build up and they dissipate. But again, you know, because of social media, because of people being able to see what was happening and it really like ended up being worldwide. It wasn't, it wasn't restricted to the, to the US. Mm. Um, so in that sense, you know, like it's, it's, it's easier to build movements when you can see other people participating in the same thing everywhere else. Um, but then of course, like anything that's a threat to the system will face, well, one, a level of intimidation and two, you know, uh, an effort to co-opt it, right? uh, An effort to make, again, you know, kind of symbolic changes or to use the right kind of language and all this kind of stuff. Um, but ultimately to, to deliver very, very minimal changes, right? And you know, now we have Joe Biden, who was the architect of one of, well, I would say the worst pieces of um, quote unquote crime legislation in, in US history, the, the crime bill, um, which, you know, people, people give Clinton credit for it because he signed it. But Biden was really one of the, one of the chief architects of it, um, which, you know, has just worsened mass incarceration, criminalization and all all of all of these things right but even joe biden now knows what kind of like he knows that law and order language sounds like trump sounds like republican sounds Mm -hmm. like bad people so of course he's gonna you know he's gonna change the language is the system gonna change i i 
doubt it very much. I mean, not this quickly, not this. Yep. But in terms of being able to at least introduce the idea of defunding police into the mainstream, like that's huge. Yeah. Like you couldn't say that without being ridiculed before. Totally. Like people would not like people would not take you seriously. And this yeah. is not even we're not even talking about abolishing the police. We, this is talking about reallocating some of and the US is, you know, it's particularly ridiculous in the US. Where, especially when, you know, people started seeing the graphs mm. of public funding and just the insanely disproportionate amount of money that went to cops. Yeah. You know, that conversation, it just didn't exist. Yeah. And and you know, the stuff about mass incarceration and police brutality, like um, the sad thing is, you know, it's just so prevalent and so constant in, I'm speaking particularly in the US that, that, you know, it just becomes people just, I think they just adjust their their baseline changes and it just becomes a given, you know, and if it doesn't affect you, then, you know, you say the right things and, oh, it's, isn't it terrible or whatever, but you don't actually have to do anything. Um, And I think, at the very least, like it's just, it's just shifted the window a little bit in terms of are cops cool? Is it cool to make, you know, I guarantee you, you know, production companies and you know, everyone is going to think twice before making the next cop show or the next cop movie or not that it's going to stop, but they're not going to churn them out like they did before. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, do you but at, the same, at the same time we are also going to get and we're already getting a ton of b-grade content that is just about representation yeah yeah right it's going to be like south asian showrunner does a show about growing up as a teenager in whatever and it's a oh our writing room is all brown people and whatever and it's just going to be like really shallow like whatever stuff yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. Not, not challenging and not, not challenging. Not again, you know, it's just like fine on the surface, but nothing. Yeah. And, and what you said also about the movement being co-opted, like I feel like the Democrats, they sort of started trying to do that immediately with, with black lives matter and um, yeah, like Biden. Then do you, um, let's stay in America for a second. Do you feel like if Bernie Sanders, like back, a while ago if he'd become the president of america say for example does that um have a massive effect do, do huge things change or do you think that change can only come well, i mean i don't know even where you sit politically are you a democratic socialist or or do you believe in yeah someone like bernie sanders or do you believe in smashing capitalism altogether <laughs> yes i'll take i'll take c i'll take option c <laughs> But, you know, I do think, I think Sanders is like substantially different to the majority of the Democrats. I don't think he's as perfect as people, you know, some of his supporters would make out, but definitely substantially different. And also his record is substantially different, right? Yeah. And and again, not perfect. Like he's not like, he's nowhere near as revolutionary as people think he is. Yeah. But I do think like he genuinely stands for something quite different to the democratic status quo. Yeah. Um, now, you know, would he have been able to make that stuff reality? I don't know. Um, or, but maybe he would have been able to, again, like popularize, you know, different ideas. Yeah. Uh, at least more radical leaning ideas. Um, yeah. And I think he got, he got railroaded for a reason, right? Yeah. Like, like literally overnight, overnight. Yeah. Obama personally called the other, these are all like, craven, attention-hungry narcissists who wanted to be president. Yeah. But, for the, but really for the sake of defeating Sanders, they all just took a step back and took their little, you know, whatever um, appointments and uh, what's Buttigieg is now like, you know, head of trans- transportation or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, they all, they all took their, their kind of consolation prize and got in line behind, behind Biden. It's wild, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of nice. It's like 
you know, it's nice that sometimes they tremor in their boots or whatever. Is that the expression? Tremble in their boots or whatever. You know, it's nice that they got a bit scared and that's that's a cool thing. And he definitely did popularize like the word socialism. Like I don't think similar yeah, to yeah. defunding the police. Like if you said the word socialism in America 10 years ago, people would fucking bash you. <laughs> yeah, they'd be like, you're, you're a communist. You're an yeah, idiot, you know? yeah. But yeah, and again, you know, same with sit. Not just with Sanders, AOC, like even if they fail, and I feel like there's a lot of resentment growing for AOC now because she's kind of not delivering on stuff and she's toning things down. She's kind of running interference with the Democrats a little bit. Like, but the yep. energy that they've created and the conversations they've created along the way, um, I feel like they're kind of here to stay. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like the, the, you know, the reason AOC is getting blasted now is because you know, because she's not coming out, people think, hard enough against, you know, the, the incarceration of migrant children. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there was all this kids in cages energy, and now, you know, you know she, she did some Instagram live where she was like, well, it was worse under Trump because the babies were literally being pulled out of the arms of their parents. And understandably, a lot of people are like, hey. Like, yeah, this is fucked. This is not what we, this is not what we, we put a lot of energy into getting you elected for. Yeah, yeah. I am. Um, I thought that when Trump would get elected, I, I, I was really hopeful that like, um, you know, because like I've seen you do a bit of comedy about Obama. I think it's like you tie him to like maybe Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech or something. And you say like, I don't think, I don't think, um, I don't think his dream would, that there would be that there would be a brown person bombing other brown people. Do you remember that bit? I saw it on the ABC like years ago when I was like pretty young. Wow. Does it no, ring I a bell? Did, I did. Yeah, it was yeah, something I like did. that. It was something like that. I don't think there was any, I don't think there was an MLK thing, but it was oh, basically, right, right. That. It was basically right. that like, you know, like, well, it was about representation basically. Like, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. One day yeah. you two can basically, you know, go to war and bomb people and incarcerate people and whatever. Yeah. Did you get, um, I was going to ask something else, but just quickly, did you, um, were you, when Obama got elected, I'm not sure how old you were. I was like 12 years old. So I, um, I was firmly of the belief at that stage in my life that this was a massive turning point in the world and, and the world yeah. was going to be good now. Um, were you at that point when he got elected, were you cynical or were you like excited Were you like, fuck, this is, yeah, uh, I, was, I was very cynical. Yeah, you already knew. <laughs> well, just because, I mean, you know, the thing is, like, people, you know, a lot of people were like, give him a chance and you don't know what he's going to do. I was like, but he just said what he's going to do. Like, yeah. he, like, they give all of these speeches leading up to becoming president because obviously they need to get, they need to get the lobbyists on board. They need to get the, they need yeah. to get the Democratic establishment on board. They have to state their position. You can't just be this mystery candidate. So yeah. It's all hope and change, and then, but you know, people don't pay attention to any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right, when you clearly give a speech, you know, saying I will support Israel, and then I say he's going to support Israel. And people go, oh, well, how do you know? I'm like, because he <laughs> fucking said it, dude. I'm not making up. Like, <laughs> so yeah, and and yeah, it was it was. Yeah, but you know, this is so. You know, Obama came after Bush, which you know, I was. I was a teenager when 9-11 happened. Bush was the worst thing imaginable. We couldn't picture anything worse than Bush. It was the end of the world. Then Obama came along and it was kind of a relief. And okay, he's bad, but he's not as bad as Bush. Mm. I mean, the same thing is happening with Trump and Biden. And yeah, people, who, totally. people are too young to remember Bush. Forget like, you know, the Bush and the Howard years. Like people in Australia who don't remember Howard. Mm. like that was the worst thing we could imagine yeah but now everything under howard is just standard yeah it's yeah like, like refugee policy it, it's just completely normal yeah it's not this new horrific thing that's about to happen yeah that's really sad our our standards change and we just allow more horrible shit to happen that becomes the benchmark um but then i then i got kind of um, uh, I don't know. I had some weird sort of hope in my head that when Trump was elected, because he was such a recognizable evil, that it would make people 
um, shift their thinking and that like, do you know what I mean? Like he's not like yeah. Obama. He's so obviously evil. And then people yeah. would get all energized by that. But now that Biden's back, like you said, it just feels sort of this cyclical thing. I don't know. Do you think in any way was I right? Like has Trump, is there any sort of silver lining from the Trump years in terms of people being like fuck politicians, like seeing such an evil one or whatever? It's, it's hard to say because, you know, like Trump played a really good game where he just, you know, it was, it was all spectacle, right? Mm. So it was all, it was all about him and it was really all about his behavior, his language, his behavior, the way he, the way he spoke to people, the way he spoke about people, you know, uh, his, his kind of personal racism, his personal misogyny, all this kind of stuff. Mm. And, you know, the Democrats kind of played the same game. They, you know, we, we need to restore kind of um, honor to the office and we need to be nice and we need to, we need to be civil and, and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, in the middle of that, the kind of structural critique, there isn't, it kind of gets lost, right? That yeah. was the only people really bringing that in a major way were BLM, kind of the Sanders AOC kind of umbrella. Yep. Um, so I think, I think they've done that, but I think they've really done that, not just in opposition to Trump, but in opposition to the Democrats record. I think what Trump really highlighted is that the Democrats for years have not really done anything substantial. Yeah. Yeah. You know, their, their job is really to hold, hold strong to the status quo. Yeah. I mean that, that I've got to go in a second that really ties back (laughs) That ties back perfectly to the That's conversation really cool at the point. start. Uh, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll later. Anyway, I gotta go. <laughs> no, but I was just saying I gotta go because yeah, you, that you ties. Tell me, marketer that rang you up and was like, "Hey, man, listen to these ideas." We're talking about structural. No, <laughs> no, I'm just saying because that ties back to what we were saying at the start. It's like, it's like. You know, everyone's looking at whether Biden is polite when he talks about women as opposed to Trump not being polite when he talks about women instead of looking at the actual difficult things to look at, which is what we were talking about at the start. That's a nice nice circle, isn't it? (laughs) Style over substance. Yeah, yeah. That's that's not to say that that stuff didn't have an effect. You know, like Trump essentially popularizing hate speech like yeah. that's real it's yeah. not that it's not important but. yeah 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 and and does that um yeah yeah i guess so that that is a worry like the rise of proper like fascism and you know that stuff in america like that yeah it's not gone yeah it's yeah gone. yeah yeah someone said and- actually you had a conversation with naomi klein once didn't you Yes. Yeah, yeah, I love her. She said that like Trump has created this vacuum and in this vacuum there is so much opportunity for um you know for great stuff like conversations about abolishing the police. You can like get that in there, but the vacuum also allows really fucking scary stuff like that proper hard right racism neo-Nazi shit yeah. to get in there as well. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't leave when he leaves. Yeah. yeah. Genie's out of the bottle. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that's because scary. He's driven by so much conspiracy. You know, he said he just kind of whether he set it up perfectly or it happened by accident. You know, this idea that one, you know, he was kind of this messiah who had kind of you know scammed his way into the Republican Party, even though there are also bad elites who don't want him in there and all this kind of conspiracy stuff. Basically, to his followers. It doesn't matter if he loses. It doesn't matter if he doesn't deliver on any promises because it's always the evil people stopping him. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> it's fucking like, crazy. Like, what did DJ Khaled say? Like, they don't they don't want you to succeed. They don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck. So. It's so crazy. Um. At the end of this podcast, I completely forgot to tell you about it. I think I forgot to tell you about this, but I always ask people to recommend an artist. Like it could be a musician or a comic or whatever you want. If you can't think of one off the top of your head, you can just email it to me if you want to, if you want to like have a proper think of it, or if you can think of one, you can recommend them. 
what I've been re-listening to or re-watching or re- Oh, well, I'll give you a, yeah, I started watching um, Small Acts on Amazon. What's that? Uh, so uh, Steve McQueen uh, has done like, a, it's like an anthology. Yeah. They're like, they're like movie length episodes. It's about the West Indian community in London in the uh, sort of 60s and 70s. Cool. Um, so I've, I've only seen the first episode, but it was really, really, really amazing. Um, okay, sick. Yeah, it's, it's really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, just before, now I want to, uh, there's heaps of shit I want to ask you. What's your favorite TV show ever? Wait, you got to go. I, I know. I'm I, going I, in I'm one minute. For the rest of the day. I'm going in one minute. <laughs> what, um, what, 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 what's your favorite TV show, Amir? My favorite TV? What, uh... If you had to say one. <laughs> It's not my favorite. Like I'm watching all the Marvel stuff. I, I, like I watch WandaVision and I watch You're a Marvel person. Oh, dude, I'm such a loser. <laughs> like it goes against it goes against all the shit I believe. It does. It really does. It really no. It really does. Like it really does. And like I'm I'm, I'm a simp. I'm a simp for Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um. Thank so you like, so yeah, much. Like I, like I watch it and I'm conflicted, but I just, I have to watch the next episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, I read an article once that said that people that watch that, um, people that watch the dumbest shit are often very intelligent because you, you're oh, busy, yeah, totally, you're busy thinking well. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you need to switch off sometimes. You need to watch stupid yeah. superheroes every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I gotta go now. Thank you so much for talking hey, don't, to don't me. Don't let me keep you. <laughs> um, maybe one day we do a part two. There's heaps of other shit I want to talk to you about. Oh, I'm just pressed for time. Now that we've actually managed to make it happen, yeah. Uh, seriously, anytime, man. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks heaps, Amir. I appreciate it. Sick. I'll um, I'll speak to you soon. Have a good day. You too, man. Take it easy. Bye. See you, man. Bye.